content warning. The following will contain imagery and discussion on drug use, overdose, death, mental illness, and other potentially triggering subject matter. Viewer discretion is strongly advised. The views and opinions discussed on this panel do not necessarily reflect those of Recovery Unplugged. Welcome to Toxicology. Toxicology is a place where we talk about addiction, ways away from addiction, and ways of treating addiction, as well as the roads that lead to and from. With us today, we have Brooke Leonard Fossil and Forrest Sockwell. Brooke is a clinical therapist. She is a nationally certified counselor and ERYT 500 yoga instructor and Mayo Clinic certified health and wellness coach. Brooke lives in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. She offers both in-person and virtual visits. Forrest Sockwell is a managing partner at ALR Freedom in Prattville, Alabama. ALR Freedom is a men's sober living whose mission is to provide ethical, supportive, safe, and healthy recovery for men who desire freedom from chemical dependency. The environment will inspire meaningful recovery through daily activities which are current residents to their, to their journey to healthy living. Thank you both for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thank you. We also have- I have a question. Oh, okay, introduce me oh, and then no. I'll ask my question. No, 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 no. <laughs> Joseph, what are, what's your question? Well, I'm Joseph. Hello. I, um, I have first Forrest. I have a guess, but I would like to know what ALR stands for. It's uh, any length resources. Oh, so close. I was just thinking any length recovery, but <laughs> I like your style. I like yeah, your style. Uh, and then Brooke, it's not really a question. It's more of a comment. You know, welcome. And Mayo Clinic. Very impressive. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's really cool. And, and that, that you're nationally certified, uh, as well is, uh, I'm sure that took some work. So, yeah, uh, yeah. Thank you very much. <laughs> I like to jump right to the in-depth discussions, you know? Oh, absolutely. That's okay. That's completely okay. So, um, Brooke, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, sure. I have been working in the field of mental health. Um, for 12 years now, um, and I've been teaching yoga for about 20 years. I've always um, done work in like expressive therapies has been sort of my niche market. So anything that involves um, just ways to access healing to the, for the brain, just giving giving our, our mental capacities a break and and even some some really positive experiences, you know. Um, I work as a clinical therapist, so I'm full-time doing that and um, really love my work. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, Forrest, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, uh, I struggled with addiction uh, for the majority of my adult life. And uh, I actually started out with ALR originally as a resident, uh, went through their program, then went and worked for the Department of Juvenile Justice for a while in Florida before coming back to ALR as an employee and just worked my way up to becoming one of the owners. And so that's pretty much how I spend my days, just working. <laughs> well, um, I'm sure it's, uh, if, if it's anything like, you know, like us, you know, it's it's definitely work, but a labor of love. So thank you both for, for joining us and thank you for uh, taking the time out to meet with us this evening. Um, you know, one of the things, um, you know, I wanted to talk about is, and, and you know, it's, it's the end of the year and a lot of people are, 
I tried to schedule something with my doctor and they were like, oh yeah, we can get you in in like, you know, January. And I'm like, no, I want to get in this month because my, my, my deductible is going to reset. And, you know, and so we get a lot of, you know, a lot of treatment centers and a lot of, you know, hospitals are, um, are, are trying to get people into care. Um, but one of the, 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 the other side of that coin is that, you know, healthcare is expensive, right? Healthcare is so expensive that we spend this time and energy trying to, trying to like get, you know, get in before our deductibles reset. As a matter of fact, SAMHSA reports that more than 75% of those abusing illicit drugs or alcohol in America are employed. And that addiction costs employers an additional $81 billion a year. Employers can save money by offering a path to treatment versus the costs associated, you know, through discipline and turnover as well as lost productivity. What do you, what have you guys seen as far as you know any sort of employers locally? You guys, we have Sioux Falls and we have you know Alabama, um, you know, represented here. Um, what what have you guys seen in your in your areas that you know local employers are doing to help individuals? either divert or avert some of this cost associated with treatment and care. Brooke, go first. Um, I love the topic. And in my demo, like in my region and my area, I don't hear employers talking about that almost at all. I know anecdotally that there are um, employers that do have beautiful, uh, you know, gr you know, grace for their employees, but I don't know if it's something that the employees know about. And somebody struggling with a mental illness or an addiction um, is is very vulnerable. They're in a space where they don't know. Um, who is a safe person to talk to about it. And so I do really believe that in this space, the burden lies on the employer to make sure that they're initiating these conversations so that the employees know it's safe to ask for help or that that's a possibility that's possible for them. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a really good point. You know, um, you know, it, it could save an employer so much money by, by providing assistance rather than, you know, having to pay for, you know, the, the other costs associated with treatment. Forrest, have you seen anything in, in Alabama? Are there any sort of diversion uh, opportunities or any, um, uh, or tactics used by employers? Well, I would say here it's pretty, pretty similar to what she was saying. Uh, it's, it's pretty taboo, I guess, when people think about dealing with employees with addiction and things like that, which it, Totally shouldn't be because it affects so many different people. Uh, I've heard of some rare cases where some companies are actually really good about working with people, you know, providing uh, job security when they're gone to treatment. And I even heard about one situation where uh, a person was paid some of their uh, salary while they were gone. Uh, but for the most part, you don't see many employers doing as much as they really should be doing because at the end of the day, it would save money instead of having to pay for training for new employees and things like that. Uh, Joseph, Joseph, has, uh, Joseph, you did a, uh, a presentation about the cost of addiction 
um, you know, and and how that and how that trickles down to the employer's bottom line. Can you can you can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, well, I, I mean, you know, uh, the cost is, you know, it's in order to calculate like the true cost. It's it's such a daunting task just because. You know, there, there's a stuff that you think of, right? Like, okay, like if I got to pay a severance or, you know, and what I got to, what I spend to find a new candidate, interview the candidate, onboard them, train them. Like, obviously that costs, you know, hours uh, from, you know, other, other people on your staff being able to do the work with that person. But then you got to look at kind of the way the revolving door impacts, you know, your, your team's, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, you know, just the, the motivation of, of the team, right? If, if members are constantly leaving, if they're seeing that the company doesn't support individuals who are struggling, um, that's, that's kind of one of the hidden costs of it. Um, and, and then just constantly having new employees, right? What I've seen with, with my staff, with my team here at Recovery Unplugged is that the people that have been with me year over year do better year over year. Um, and I think that it, a lot of times employers fail to realize that cost of constantly having a, a green team. Um, and, and they also don't realize the value a lot of the time in, you know, if you support an employee through a dark time, you know, when they're struggling emotionally, mentally, when they're struggling with alcohol and drugs or whatever it may be, if you support them through that, hold true to your word and have their job waiting for them when they get back, what you get back is is a, a better employee, a loyal employee, someone that's grateful, someone that's going to work hard for you because you took care of them through that challenging time, right? So yeah. I think there's a lot to think about when it comes to employers and their relationships with employees who have uh, alcohol and drug problems. I agree. I agree. You know, um, one of the you know, I guess this probably could be looked at as a funnel, right? Or at least a pipeline of, you know, there, there's, there's the addiction, there's the employer, and then there is the, the decision of what happens once, once an addiction comes to light. Um, can that, can that split happen earlier? You know, and, and I guess I'm going to direct this question at Brooke. Brooke, have you, could you, could you give us some insight as to how employers or how companies could, um, you know, start that decision process earlier about addiction or, um, I guess, severance versus, you know, identifying addiction and, and then, you know, because, you know, let's say that someone has an addiction and, and a lot of times it's not until someone has a, a workplace accident or they show up inebriated, do a lot of businesses, then, make that decision or say, Hey, you know, listen, I think, think, I don't think this is working out or, Hey, you need help. What are some, what are some things that a company can do leading up to that point uh, before it gets to that point or how can they, what should they be looking out for? Um, you know, and, and their employees who may or may not be struggling with addiction. Is Brooke frozen? I think she may be frozen. Forrest, you the get this up, movie. <laughs> I mean, uh, I, I would say the things that the employer should be looking looking out for would probably be uh, just a, a slacking in quality of work and things like that and tardiness, 
say showing up smelling like alcohol or anything like that. There's so many different ways or things that they can see uh, mm -hmm. to shed light on what could be possibly going on with them. And that's when they should be making the suggestions of what they think probably should be going on. Give them kind of a fair warning that they we think something's going on. Gotcha. You, you know, we got a really, a really good comment here in the, in the Facebook comment section, Kay. It says, we offered virtual mental health sessions at zero cost sharing to our employees. But that said, there is a stigma to reaching out and we had very low utilization. So it sounds like even some of the companies that are trying to do the right thing for their employees aren't seeing these employees uh, utilize those resources. Um, mm. So, I mean, so Forrest, I mean, what are some of the reasons that you think someone might not want to take advantage of, of these resources? You know, do you, do you still see a lot of stigma in Alabama? Uh, yeah, I would say so. Uh, even though addiction affects so many different people, we all have either ourselves or friends or family that's dealing with it. For some reason, people still don't like to talk about it. And uh, I know from my own personal experience, I, I didn't want to say anything to my employer because I felt like I would be looked at different. Even if I was able to go to treatment and come back and be a hardworking employee again, I, I still didn't trust that. I was afraid that word was going to get around to other employees. I was going to walk in, see people snickering in the corner, things like that. Uh, so it was really just fear, I guess. Yeah. Oh, so, so Brooke, we were, we were just talking about how, you know, some employers actually do offer resources and, but what they see very often is low utilization of those resources by their employees, um, possibly due to stigma or fear. You know, what are your thoughts? You know, um, what have you seen in your practice? Um, I feel like things are moving slowly in a better direction. But I do think that for the most part, people who are ready to say that they have an addiction problem are not in a great place. And um, they're very sick in, in a lot of different ways. And they're having a hard time um, making good decisions. And, um, and they may be in a situation that they're really not proud of. Um, and that just kind of comes with the escalation of addiction in general, um, that we find ourselves in, you know, a, a bottom that continues to, to move as we're willing to, um, or as we stay in, in our active addictions. And so when you've got someone who's in a, a really unbelievable situation for themselves, um, there's so much shame around that, that it's, it's not... It's not in that time when I think we're able to sell our, our population, our, our people on recovery. I mean, this, this message probably needs to come across um, early and often, um, just like everything else kind of that we try to do as parents or in our lives that we bring it up before it's a problem. We bring it up before someone's in crisis. And, and maybe we can save someone from um, a life space crisis, but also just letting them know that when they are in crisis, when they are in trouble, that um, that that is the time that they that they can talk to us about that. That's what we're preparing them for. So there's got to be a culture of safety around that, and um, and I think it needs to be communicated so often so that there is an opportunity to hear it when someone's receptive. You know, absolutely, great. 
So, you know, um, so that talks, so I think that, 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 that begs the, the topic of employer empathy. You know, research strongly indicates that people who are employed while in treatment are significantly more likely to complete treatment than unemployed people. Um, so helping employees maintain job security while in treatment is important. You know, you guys, you know, both Forrest and Brooke, you guys both have worked with individuals. Do you guys see, do you guys see a lot of your clients or individuals that go into inpatient as well as, you know, you know, even if it's just detox, able to keep their jobs while they're going through? I would say a large portion uh, of the people that I see, they, uh, when they go into detox, even though they go in with that fear of losing their job, most of the time the employers will try to work with them. And I, I feel like that gives them more of a drive to go through, finish, and get everything together, especially when you know you have a supportive company that's backing you, waiting for you, I guess. Um, you know, Brooke, one of the things, is, one of the things that a lot of people are, you know, are struggling with is exactly how they're going to pay for treatment. And, um, I've, I've worked with, I've, you know, I've worked with patients and callers whose employers have actually helped them pay for treatment. Um, you know, uh, what is it, what's your experience? Have you, have you seen employers, uh, help individuals go through treatment as far as, you know, monetary uh, is concerned, or has it been just pretty much just, yeah, you'll have a job when you come back, just get better. I don't know. I mean, that's a good question. I know that a lot of treatment facilities are at least covered by health insurance. So keeping mm -hmm. employment, I mean, is key in terms of access to your health benefits. Um, you know, and, and I also think of, um, the impact of addiction, active addiction, in um, as a liability for any employer, um, and there's not one walk of life that is exempt from that. You know, I I have people in my life who were physicians and needed to go to treatment, and I can't imagine, you know, having a company that had any culture at all and not wanting to help somebody who's asking for help. Um, I know that there are probably some behaviors um, that would that would maybe be an offense that would be something that you could be terminated for, you know, in your job. And so hopefully, hopefully we're asking or, or people are asking for help, you know, Aside from that, or it doesn't become an interrogation of, you know, what's happened in the past. But I have seen employers um, not only protect the job of their employee, but um, I think it's a great opportunity for a system to show its humanity. It's a really great opportunity to deepen trust uh, with your team and with each other. And I think that um, when handled well, you know, with healthy people around, um, mature people around who are educated on addiction, it, it's a really beautiful opportunity to not only save a life, but to in, increase your sense of community and culture. Absolutely. You know, Forrest, I think that, you know, somebody seeing that, that happen, right? If, if you are, um, you know, you're working for an organization and they 
have that amount of empathy and ability. Um, you know, I, I imagine that some employers might feel like if they are too supportive of addiction and, and helping people get help, that it might be seen as a weakness. What, you know, what would you say to, you know, to someone who's watching this, who, you know, is a, is in HR or who is a, is an employer or is a supervisor. Um, and, you know, they are, you know, they're wondering how does this work? You know, what, do, what does, what does happen if you let this person go to treatment and you help pay for it and you help them navigate insurance and you help them get into treatment, you know, how, how do you think that will be viewed by the rest of the employees and how do you think that will affect the statute, the stature and the status of that employer? I think that if a employer was to go and do that, take care of their employee like that, that would be extremely beneficial for the morale of the rest of the company because it would show them that they aren't all talk about this, the quote unquote being a family at this business or whatever you hear everywhere that you go, that it would show that they actually back what they're saying and that they actually care about their employees. Uh, so I think it would be a, a huge positive move in all categories, I guess, especially in that well, life because they're probably going to come back and work 10 times harder, a little bit more devoted as well. Well, one of the things that, that, that kind of, I think kind of correlates is, you know, a lot of times with clients who are in treatment, we talk about how like vulnerability is actually strength, right? That like walking through fear and becoming vulnerable and sharing feelings and emotions and all that stuff is actually uh, something that's very, you know, it, it, it is a strength, right? Even though in the you're making yourself vulnerable, you're actually being very strong and standing in your power in that. And I think the same thing kind of what Forrest made me think of kind of works with companies, right? Like, yeah, you know, you, you do run the risk of investing time and resources into a person who ultimately burns you, right? Gets arrested, leaves, you know, walks off the job. But but the the risk reward of, you know, do you support them and they come back 10 times better, I think, uh, is is probably worth it. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, getting that person back in, you know, I, 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 I don't know anyone who has not gone back to a job who wasn't grateful. Right. And addiction is one of those things where it's hard to bifurcate, you know, what was happening versus what is happening versus what will happen. And, you know, no one, no one can predict that. And, you know, I, I think that you're just as likely to have a new employee who's, going to also struggle with things, if even not addiction, then it, then you would be to have someone that comes back and stays sober. So, you know, I, I think that, you know, if we, if we look at it from the perspective of, you know, it's, it's always better to go with what you know, it's always trust, it's always better to trust the, the information that you have than to guess the information that you don't. Um, so, you know, okay. So let's so let's go down this let's let's go down this aisle. Um, so you know we have someone who has decided or made the decision to get into treatment or to go to treatment or they're struggling with an addiction, and their employer um, is being thoughtful and appreciative of this person's necessity and need for recovery and treatment, and either by way of you know 
helping them navigate the insurance blockades, helping them navigate the cost blockades, helping them navigate all of the different things as well as, you know, hey, you'll have a job when you get back. The person has then gone into treatment and the person's job has been, let's say, you know, preserved so that when they got back, they were able to kick their job back up. Let's talk about the challenges of staying in recovery after, you know, while at work, after you've gone through that process. Um, you know, you know, making it to meetings on time, doing your step work, you know, facing triggers while at work, the stigma of, you know, where did you go for 30 days? Um, you know, Forrest, you know, tell me about that. What would you say to someone that's staring down the barrel of coming out of, you know, I think that these would be some of these gentlemen that might even be, you may be even having this conversation actively right now um, with, you know, with individuals that are in your in your home um, that are having difficulty with balancing all of this. What do you say to them? Well, luckily, if if COVID has taught us anything, it's that we can use the Internet for everything. So even if it works, <laughs> you can still make it to a meeting. You can do Zoom, all these different things. And there's 24 seven Zoom meetings for 12 step recovery. So there's. There's no excuse to not be able to make a meeting. Now, when it comes to triggers at work and things like that, um, you kind of just have to learn to find ways around that. If it's, it's if it's a bad trigger and your employer actually knows about your issues with addiction, a lot of times that's something that you can go to them and say, look, for right now, while I'm in early recovery, is there anything else I can do in this situation? If they're willing to work with you, then, you know, that might be a route that you can take. Question for us, follow up question to that, you know, in in sober living, you know, when you've got guys in your house who've got 30 days, 45 days and they're looking for work, you know, do you do you put any restrictions on where they can work or what hours they can work or, you know, are there things that you, you know, are there jobs that you kind of recommend like, hey, don't don't go do that job right now? Right. So obviously uh, I've got rules. They can't go work at a bar. You can't be a bartender in early recovery, at least not while you're staying here. There are people that can do that. But in my experience, it doesn't normally work out. Um, now, as for time restrictions and things like that, I always highly suggest, you know, don't work overnight jobs because the facility I, that I'm at, we have groups here in the daytime. Uh, so if you work overnight, you're going to be sleeping through every group. Uh, don't work more than 35, 40 hours a week at first. You know, we're, we're affordable. You don't have to work 70 hours a week to be able to pay rent here. So we say just try to get a recovery job when you first get here you know you might be waiting tables you know working at a fast food place something like that you don't have to do these high stress jobs that are going to throw you into a uh, bad headspace so that that's just some of the suggestions i try to give people awesome that's, that's good stuff yeah what about you brooke um the question is access to meetings or I'm sorry. <laughs> well, we we kind of jumped around a little bit. What do you I'll tell people about whatever you want. <laughs> are new into recovery and you know trying to trying to keep everything together? What are the do's and don'ts of fresh out of recovery? I think the do's and don'ts of fresh out of recovery I wish lasted forever because it is a time of prioritizing taking care of yourself and healing the relationship you have with yourself above all. It is um, just, I mean, can you imagine if we put that 
priority on our mental health um, and our needs all the time. We would just have such a wonderful relationship with ourselves that it would just, I mean, yeah, I have the feeling that uh, that the effects of that would be incredible. Um, so yeah, I think just taking care of yourself. I love the idea, Forrest, of like 35 hours a week. We're good with that, you know? Um, that's all right. We're good with with not, uh, you don't have to go all the way. You don't have to prove yourself right now. Like, like you're getting through this day. You're having a new relationship with life. You're learning to live in a whole new way. And it's, I don't know, it's just a powerful time. But I do wish that we would take care of ourselves and and encourage our employees and, and our coworkers to do the same all the time. You, you know, Brooke, what, what you said really resonated in me because like, uh, there, there's times when I look back at being fresh out of treatment, in sober living, working at a car wash, you know, and and have a little bit of nostalgia for it because, yeah, like I'd wake up at 8 a.m. and drink coffee and read like five different morning devotional books and discuss them with my peers in recovery there at the sober house and went to a meeting every day and had time to you know, sponsor eight guys and do all these things that, you know, as you know, in recovery, right. Our lives get filled with all these blessings to where like, I've, I have a great life. Right. But I have a big job and I've got a wife and I got three kids and we have responsibilities to where sometimes like that simple, like, I don't have anything else to do other than work on myself. Just <laughs> sounds so good. Doesn't it? It does. Yeah. I think even for people who aren't in recovery, right. <laughs> Totally, you know. So Jason Cabello had a uh, had a question. I said, "What about a rehire for someone that was terminated and then found recovery?" Um, you know, I, I think that you know there there are two there are two edges on that sword. One is that you know I love forgiveness and retribution, and forgiveness and retribution are are, are beautiful and, and wonderful things. The, the only thing I would worry about would be, you know, the potential triggers that would that would entail with, you know, with a job that potentially had terminated you or had, that had let you go or whatever. Um, so, you know, just, uh, um, you know, I, I, I don't know. Uh, what about what do you think, Joseph? You know, going back to somewhere that you were terminated from and requesting and, and asking for a job back. I mean... I, I see pros and cons to it, right? You know, one, one of the most basic recovery tips that, that has been echoed in the 12-step rooms for decades is, you know, you got to change people, places, and things, you mm -hmm. know? And especially in early recovery, I know locations can bring back very visceral um, emotional memories yeah. um, and, and uh, you know, could be triggering. Right. And now I do believe that an individual individual can get to a point in their recovery where, you know, you don't have to be on the watch for triggers all the time. But going back to an employer um, that that you were bad enough to get fired from because of your alcohol and drug use immediately could be really bad. Right. But on the flip side, it could also be a, a, a story of triumphant return, you know, a phoenix rising from the ashes, you know, the guy that got canned six months ago is back and now he's the assistant manager or or he's you know kicking butt and hitting all his numbers and moving up in the ranks um so i think it's very case by case but 
I, I believe that when individuals focus on themselves first, right, and prioritize their recovery and their own work, that there's very few things they cannot do. You know, um, you know they can. There, there's a there's a really famous book. It's blue. It's got 164 pages in it. That that says, you know, uh, a man who's recovered can go anywhere and do anything that a, a normal man can. And and I, I've I've always found that to be true. I like that. I like that. All right. Um, so uh, one takes it one step further, kind of in the same vein. Is my job causing me to use substances? Like, is my job a trigger? You know, if you're an attorney, probably. Yeah, or a police <laughs> officer, or a nurse, or a doctor. Um, uh, first, what are your what what would be what would be some? Uh, how would you answer that question to someone that, that comes to you and say, "Hey, how do I know if my job is a trigger?" Well, I'd say that that would be a hard one because initially I want to say like, you know, it is what you make it, but that's not always the case. If you have a job where you're constantly exposed to stress or substances of some kind, you know, say if you work in the uh, food industry, a lot of kitchens, you find, you know, drugs and alcohol in the back and things like that. So that could be a case and that would be a situation where, you know, you lay out like the different ideas of, you know, what could potentially be a trigger and let them decide for themselves. Okay. Maybe I do have an issue with that. Maybe I do have an issue with this. Um, so that's probably the route I would go with it. What about you, Brooke? Um, how does, uh, what if somebody came to you and said, uh, Hey, I think my job might be a trigger. How do I know? You know, I think any job could be a trigger. Um, but I believe that it's more about the like climate of the workplace because I mean we all know that there are um, individuals in recovery, you know, probably working everywhere. What Sam Sam Malone from Cheers, right? <laughs> it's just fictional. But um, yeah, no, I, I think that any any job that throws your life into chaos is probably a trigger for all kinds of maladaptive behaviors. So I think as a, as a culture in this country, we're moving away from that. In fact, like there is a big statement being made right now about that um, in general. So I'm hopeful that people just have lives that are a little more manageable in general. Um, but I could see having a job where like your humanity is not embraced, that would be a trigger no matter where it is. Yeah. And, and I, I honestly think that, you know, if someone were to come to me and ask me, you know, is my job causing me to use substances or is my job a trigger? I, 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 I go as far as to say, if you're asking that question, it probably is. Um, or you don't understand what a trigger is. And let's 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 go and discuss what a trigger is, and what are the what are your known triggers? What do you know that triggers you? Um, when you guys have had those individuals that have come into your offices or come to you and said, "Hey, I have these I have these uh, these these active triggers," um, and 
I want to go and work or I have a skill set that places me in a very high stress situation, what do what 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 am I doing or what do I do then? You know, how do I how do how do you navigate the waters with someone who who is a, who is certainly going into a high stress environment? So like for instance, for us, you said, you know, you no one going to work and you know who's new in recovery at a bar. But let's say that someone, you know, is leaving your program. They've been clean for, you know, three months and their father owns a distillery or a winery and uh, he's going to go work for his dad or, 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 or Brooke, you know, what would you say to someone who, you know, who is in a, they're, they're a nurse and they were diverting meds and they're going back to nursing after their recovery. What do you say to those individuals and, and, and how would you steer them in the right direction for us go first? I, w- I would sit down with them and talk about all the, uh, you know, all the tools that you gain in working a recovery program that could help you potentially go back to uh, that line of work. Uh, I've seen plenty of people that have ended up going back to jobs where they serve alcohol. I've also worked with medical professionals and things like that, that are able to give medication now who used to not be able to do that. So the big thing is just knowing what you've been taught and actually implementing that into your day to day life, but also knowing if you're ready for that step. Cause a lot of people, I know myself included in early recovery, I thought I was early for some things a lot earlier than I actually was. So it's always good to have that secondary person, whether it be a sponsor, another person in recovery, uh, just anybody to get a second opinion on things before you actually jump into it. So I hear you saying like, you know, being honest with yourself and looking for some, some accountability. Right. Right. Awesome. What about you, Brooke? Nurses going back to working and nursing and, you know, she was, you know, she went into treatment after diverting meds. You know, what do you, what do you tell her? This is such a therapist response, but I just think of what a great opportunity that is for that individual to change their relationship with the trick. I mean, we can change our relationships with our environments. You know, we can do work on that. I mean, that is something that we definitely can do. Um, we can change the way that we frame and see all kinds of things life you know we mostly do live in our minds so it's the most important um aspect of our of our of our lives that we can um do some really really um probably it even seems impossible work to do so i think that's where there i mean that's where a one-on-one like a therapeutic relationship might come in a little bit more important than you know sending somebody just kind of back into a little bit uh less intense environment, but I think absolutely it's possible. One, one thing that just occurred to me, like kind of practical um, is, you know, I know uh, like here in Texas, we have a, a nursing board called TPAP and that they kind of monitor nurses who've gotten in trouble for alcohol or drugs. And one thing that often uh, they'll put on nurses who, who have a history of diverting pills is they'll have to work in an environment where narcotics are not prescribed or are very rarely prescribed. So, um, you know, pediatricians offices, you know, there, there are nursing environments where there's less of that stuff floating around. Right. So 
Um, I know that's one like kind of practical tip that that uh, I've seen with clients in the past. That's good. That's good. All right. Um, so the benefits of treatment and recovery for employees and employers is this. Independent EAPs can absolutely help individuals get into care before an accident happens, before it costs a life, before it costs a, a, a lawsuit, before it costs the company something they, they made. But also, you know, as was, like I said before, offering that to employees who are trying to be um, forward with uh, addiction doesn't always bequest the actual participation from the people that are that are using because of the stigma. The, we do know this, that 64% of people that went back to work after they had an addiction were very satisfied or satisfied with their jobs. And 82% were currently employed after treatment after a year, meaning that they had a higher retention rate than the average, than the average employer, uh, employee attrition. The big question I'm going to put out here before we go and wrap this up is, and Brooke and Forrest and Joseph, I'm going to give you all uh, opportunities to answer this is, do, do employees in recovery make better employees? Brooke, go. People in recovery are superheroes. I mean, we know that, right? There's just, I mean, there's there are measurable things to that, quantitative that we can throw out stats to, but there's the qualitative stuff that you can't measure. You cannot measure what somebody brings to the table when you know that um, they're working on themselves. They got a good night's sleep last night. You know, there's something I think like, spiritual happening around them that just i always think of this as like the i've got the ball moment like however you want to conceptualize your higher power they have their full trust in you so it's like i don't know i just think that individuals in in recovery are willing to do hard things to make sure that they protect what's important to them so yeah yeah. Well, yes, people in recovery. Yeah, every day, all day. Without a doubt. What about what about you, uh, Forrest? Uh, I would say that, at least in my situation, I, I want to be completely different than I was in my active addiction. My active addiction, I was lying, I was stealing, I was doing everything that you don't want an employee to do. And uh, now that I'm in recovery, if I if I'm going to tell you a lie it's going to eat at me for the rest of the day. And I'm going to feel like I'm going to end up going back to my old behaviors if, if I do that lie. So I'm going to end up coming back to you and saying, okay, look, look in this situation, I, I was dishonest with you earlier. I apologize. And you know, what can I do to make it right? I'm also a lot less likely to think about, you know, a little petty theft here and there trying to take <laughs> office supplies and things like that. Uh, so all around, I feel like you get, a much more honest employee out of it. Not to mention the gratitude that I even have a job in the first place because I couldn't hold down a job in active addiction. I would sober up long enough to get a job, make it about two or three weeks and then get fired or not show up. So the fact that I have somewhere to go every day that's willing to pay me to do something is just <laughs> remarkable to me in the first place. 
Those are those everyday miracles, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's the small oh, victories. Man. Joseph, tell us about, oh, man. about the type of employees that people in recovery make. Well, I just, you know, people in recovery and, and any kind of recovery, whether it's, you know, eating disorders, gambling, mental health, whatever it may be, right? Anybody who's who's active in actively living a life of recovery is someone who has done some work, like looked deep into the darkest parts of themselves where most people don't even think about going and brought that stuff to the light of the day and gotten vulnerable about it, vulnerable about it, processed it. You know, it's, you know, a life of recovery is, is something that continues for a lifetime. Right. So, so that means that people in recovery are, are individuals who are looking at themselves and their behaviors every day that are actively seeking every day to connect somehow to the, the whatever they consider their spirituality to be. Um, I, you know, most of the people I know are in recovery. And sometimes when I'm talking to, to normal people, right, I, you know, I forget that like 90% of my friends like meditate every morning. You know, 90% of my friends take inventory. 90% of my friends, when they make a mistake, when they lie, when they hurt someone else, whether it's intentional or unintentional, they feel guilty about it and then actively seek not just to apologize, but to mend it, right? Like, that's who I want in my corner, whether my business is selling tires or or uh, or I'm running an ER, right? I want people like that, you know, people that, that can overcome challenges and, and know who they are. Um, and I, I do want to real quick also highlight, um, we got a really cool story in the chat. Uh, 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 Crystal R shared on here. She said, my employer wanted to fire me five years ago when I voluntarily went to detox. I stayed sober. The same employer reprimanded me three years ago for being a victim of domestic violence. I'm still sober and now I'm a domestic violence survivor. I still have the same job. I hope my employer has learned something from my journey and doesn't repeat the same mistakes. And that's just such a cool story. You know, um, as someone who employs people, right? Once you've decided you want to fire someone, you're going to find a way to fire them. So that the, they wanted to fire her five years ago and she was able to show up in such a positive manner that she's still there five years later. I think that's a huge testament to recovery. So thank you, Crystal, for sharing that. Um, and, and before we wrap it up, I do also want to point out that like people have rights. You know, if you've been at a job for over a year, like you have FMLA rights, they can't fire you for mental health issues or substance abuse issues. Um, if your substance abuse leads to dis safety or you steal or do something like that, well, yeah, they can fire you for that. But um, for simply seeking help, you you do have rights uh, as a human being and as an American. So absolutely. Um, and, and thank you for that, Joseph. We were, we were, you know, we were we we, we could not have, you know, talked about that subject without bringing that up. And I'm very glad that you did. It's, uh, it's a very thoughtful insight. All right. Okay. So, um, Forrest, uh, I'm going to give you the last word. Um, and what I want you to tell us about is tell us about, you know, if someone is, someone knows someone at their workplace that they're working with right now, or someone is, you know, um, you know, in the comments or they're watching this later uh, and they want to know, you know, what to do when they've identified an addiction within themselves or someone else. 
what do they do next? I would say the the next thing you need to do is uh, start start seeking help. We all know somebody that has been down this way of life before. If you don't know somebody personally, somebody does. Seek help from somebody that's been there because that's the best person that you can go to to get all the resources that you need, uh, information, detoxes to go to, therapy, anything that you can think of. So just don't try to do it by yourself. That's the number one thing because at the end of the day, we can't do this alone. Absolutely. I, I concur, and I don't think uh, anyone here would disagree. Joseph, Brooke, Forrest, thank you guys. Everyone in the comments and uh, watching Facebook, YouTube, um, uh, thank you guys. I appreciate you all. Um, join us again next week. We will be uh, talking about addiction again, obviously, on toxicology. Take it easy.